You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Salas, a senior writer here at The Post. My guest today is one of the Philippines' most prominent journalists and a global advocate for, 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 for press freedom. She co-founded Rappler, the Philippines' leading digital media company. She joins me today to talk about her work and about threats to freedom of the press. Maria Ressa, a very warm welcome back to Washington Post Live. Last time we spoke, you were not yet a Nobel laureate, so congratulations. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for having me back. We're just thrilled. So I want to talk about a dark topic right away and move straight away to Ukraine. I'm seeing incredible examples of courage coming from the ground, including from my own colleagues. What's going right in our coverage of that conflict? I think it's a reminder of the role journalists play and the bravery and the courage of the journalists who have gone in, right? Uh, and of course, it's a reminder of what's really at stake. Uh, this battle for facts isn't happening in the virtual world alone. And in many ways, this is what uh, what what Russia's move, its invasion of Ukraine has reminded all of us around the world. Um, two big things, I think, has gone right. One is it has triggered a global reaction. It is not something that you can look away from. It can't go with a death by a thousand cuts, right? The world looked, <coughs> acted, business acted, and now we're looking at the tech platforms also acting. And I'm hoping out of the horrific events and the pictures that are coming out of there that we actually see some forward momentum against disinformation, which has led up to in situations like this. Maria, you've talked often about this phrase disinformation, and of course it's key right now um, to what's happening in Russia. What concerns you most about the message ordinary people in Russia are receiving at the moment? It's, un well, just based on Putin's own statements and the new law, the journalists that have been put down against journalists, pushing foreign journalists out and forcing local, the Russian journalists to choose either to shut down or to take down coverage, right? They can't use the word war among all of these things and the kinds of penalties they have to face. So uh, it is blatant. It isn't insidious in the same way it has happened on social media. This is a reorientation of reality. It is propaganda taken to the nth degree. What do Russians want? How can they know what they want if they're not getting the right information, if they're not getting factual information? This splintering of reality is alarming and helps to justify exactly what Putin is doing. When you received the Nobel Peace Prize, you did so along with another very courageous journalist, Dmitry Muratov. Have you spoken to him? He's in Russia now, I believe, or we last we heard from him, he was in Russia. Have you spoken to him in recent days? I haven't, no. Um, although I have seen some of his interviews where he said he was going to continue to use the word war, banned by the Kremlin. Also that he would print Parts, uh, he would print the stories in Ukrainian, you know, in the language of Ukraine. I, you know, we're all waiting to hear where he is and what he will do. He said he would use those wars and take the consequences. Talk to me a little bit from your own personal experience about the importance of individual words like that. The word war, which, of course, is being banned in Russia, as you said. 
you have to call a spade a spade. Anything beyond that moves reality, right? I mean, as journalists, we spend our careers learning how to shave the frills away and actually hone in. Uh, and so even a word like disinformation and misinformation, this is one of those things that, you know, misinformation is not on purpose, right? Disinformation is on purpose to manipulate you. So call a spade a spade. Um, by changing that word, just getting rid of the word war, you've already softened exactly what Russia is doing, what Putin has ordered. So again, if you were to serve the public well, you call it what it is. We're also hearing about journalists fleeing Russia. Are you tracking that as well? Um, some of my friends are there. I have friends who are Russians. And again, you know, it's not just journalists who are fleeing. Um, there are Russians who are uncertain of what is going to happen. Um, the state inside Russia itself, as these, this, but even before the sanctions, um, it will get worse moving forward. And I think that's, I guess, part of what we're dealing with globally is it's not just the uncertainty that's outside, but also inside Russia. So over the weekend, I think TikTok suspended its operations. You talked to the role of social media companies. What do you want to see happen? And I want to understand as well the implications inside the country for suspension of services like this. Look, I think you have to look at this in two different ways. The actual design of social media platforms has helped situations like this. For years now, we have seen the disinformation of the Kremlin seep into mainstream that people begin to doubt, which is, you know, that word disinformation came from Russia, uh, disinformatia. And to quote Yuri Andropov, a former KGB chair, he actually said that uh, disinformatia is like cocaine. You take it once or twice and you're okay. But you take it all the time, you get addicted. It's like uh, you're a changed person. So I paraphrased him a little bit, but that's actually what's happened to the world. We've been fed with disinformation that the actual platforms that deliver the news, the world's largest distribution, distribution platform for news is Facebook, right? These platforms, when they're designed to spread lies laced with anger and hate over facts, changes people, changes emergent human behavior. And so this is where you lead. The lies that uh, Putin has used have been seeded into uh, meta-narratives that, that make people doubt exactly what the facts are. So this is a, a fundamental problem that every democracy around the world faces. And it's part of the reason why for the last few years now, we've demanded guardrails be put around social media platforms. Well, help me understand this a little bit more on a global and then on a personal level. So we've had the spreading of the global internet and understanding that we could get news everywhere around the world. Are we at a moment where it could fracture, as I have seen people posit? It already has. I mean, if you think about it, the, the foundation of the internet today is essentially advertising, right? That advertising model that has, ascent, that has atomized meaning, right? Destroyed meaning down to the bare bones. And then 
It has also commodified news. This has made it harder for news organizations to actually, uh, our revenue model, our business model is dead. Let me not even go there. This is the, these are the platforms that are used to attack the credibility of news organizations necessary in times like this, right? So that's another, uh, this is part of where journalists are now showing why our role is important. The biggest problem is that the business model that has permeated the internet has distilled journalism to page views. And that means the entire incentive structure is built around this advertising model. The Washington Post, any news organization now, um, the money that you make is is based on your page views. This is now the, the new thing. And how do you get those page views? The incentive structure of that is based on the algorithms of the social media platforms. What are they based on? What will keep people scrolling? And what will keep people scrolling? Lies laced with anger and hate. This is part of the reason. As early as 2018, research has shown that that we that the design of these social media platforms have actually worked not just to fragment, but to divide, to polarize, and to radicalize. Uh, as early as January 2021, now uh, Oxford University's computational propaganda research project said that these cheap armies on social media have rolled back democracy in more than 80 countries around the world, and it's getting worse. Just to push back a little bit on that that broad analysis, reputable media companies are putting enormous uh, emphasis on the importance of conveying truth, fact-checking truth, and making sure that the information they disseminate around the, the world, and I would include the Washington Post prominently, is truthful. Of course, but it doesn't matter in the sense of if your delivery platform actually allows lies to spread faster and further than facts, we can create all the content we want, but it won't get the delivery. This is why putting guardrails around tech is not a freedom of speech issue, right? What's happening is we're being forced to talk about content where that's not where the problem is. It's technology, right? You move further upstream and you have to look at the algorithms of amplification. Those algorithms are determined by move further upstream the business model, uh, what Shoshana Zuboff uh, calls surveillance capitalism. So what does this mean? It means that you know every single post you put on Facebook, on Twitter, um, this is all kind of sucked up by machine learning. And a model of you that knows you better than you know yourself is created and then pulled up by artificial intelligence into this surveillance capitalism model. Every single problem that we're dealing with in the internet today, whether that is content moderation, antitrust, user safety, or even, I mean, I'm just thinking content moderation, user trust, anti-safety, data privacy. You put all of that in, this is where it begins. If we want to tackle these problems, they're not separate problems, they're all part of surveillance capitalism. But then you look at here, the algorithms, which is uh, essentially opinion in code, right? It's like taking an editor of the Washington Post and replicating that editor a million times, coding it in. That person, that opinion in code, then determines what gets distributed and what gets the widest distribution, whatever will keep you scrolling. Very nicely put, I love that, that phrase. 
Just to take us back to, to Putin's strategy, I know the Committee to Protect Journalists said he was pushing us back into an information dark age. Do you see technology overcoming that? Is it going to help us overcome that period that we hear he's pushing Russians into? I think what's fundamental right now is that the design of these technology platforms needs to be revamped to allow facts, to allow a shared reality, right? So I said this in the Nobel lecture, if you have no facts, and why do you not have facts? Because lies told a million times in the age of abundance become facts. That's what's called information operations, or in in, in many nation states, um, information warfare. When you have these lies coming bottom up, and this is the same methodology in the Philippines, in the Ukraine, in the United States, right? The meta narrative of stop the steal was seeded a year earlier before it came out of former President Trump's mouth. The same thing happens bottom up, exponentialized, top down from authority. And when you do that, you make a fact a lie. You make a lie a fact, right? So without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. If you don't have these, you don't have a shared reality. You can't have democracy. That is actually forget democracy. We cannot get people together to solve any complex problem. It's part of the reason now we can't solve COVID. Look at the disinformation. Both the EU and the United States have said that COVID disinformation has come out of many of the same places that have used disinformation for information operations. Um, And you can't, I guess the last part is, you do not know whom to trust. So until we fix this, then everything else becomes secondary. In terms of what Putin has done, clamping down, these are the same problems that we have had all throughout, right? The world then can come together. But what will stop the world coming together is if it doesn't have the right information. So ironically, in the last few weeks, what we've seen is that social media, which Putin had controlled to a many degrees. The Kremlin had the IRA and the GRU playing with this since 2014 in the Ukraine, right? Well, now people have taken that and are turning it against the Kremlin. And that's part of the reason you're seeing the information lockdown. So talk to me about who the arbiter is in this process. We know there are hard facts. We know there's, there are lies on the other side. There's a, there is an area in the middle where there's judgment, there are questions of fairness, um, of showing things from different angles. Where does that happen on social media? It's already happened. It's coded. It's already coded in, right? And then what, and this is part of the reason we want to look at the system, not at individual decisions of content. It's the system that's at, that's at flaw, right? The flaw is built in. Um, so that those editorial decisions are done at scale. And they have, uh, the research has shown this since 2018, they amplify lies more than facts. So that's the fundamental flaw. Um, and it's not just lies that, you know, like, you know, the sky is red versus blue. This is lies that have high valence, like high arousal emotions. Essentially, it is amplifying the worst of human nature, inciting anger and hate. Is it any wonder 
that these issues of identity are tearing our countries apart. Those are the targets, the fracture lines of society. Maria, you run a news organization. You're watching what's going on in Ukraine. What's it like in your office right now? What's the discussion among your team? You know, it's uh, we're under attack. We remain under attack. And just a few minutes before we spoke, I just got word that, you know, an independent body, the Commission on Elections, which oversees our elections on May 9th, so we have presidential elections on May 9th, that this independent body essentially folded to political pressure by the Solicitor General. Um, We're going to be fighting this and we'll continue to demand courage and independence from institutions. But here's the, the problem. The problems in the Ukraine are also being lived out in the Philippines, are also being lived out by journalists in other countries under attack, right? Uh, Myanmar, where genocide has been enabled by these social media platforms, journalists there have had to flee. I've got friends who are, you know, outside on the border. Um, So what are we thinking? I, I guess when I saw this happen, I'm up, it's glass half full, half empty, right? So the half empty part is there's war and the entire world could get sucked in. We don't know what will happen. And then the reaction and how that's also made uh, President Putin, how Putin has hunkered down. But then the upside, here's the upside. In many ways, the death by a thousand cuts of democracy that we have seen all around the world is now front and center. That, that now these problems will be addressed and that will hopefully mean problems of disinformation, for example, will be addressed head on. That what the social media platforms do in Russia, in the Ukraine, can be done in other countries around the world where journalists are under attack. Uh, it's, it's difficult to predict where the world will go, but that's the way I've felt for the last six years. Right. So I wanted to ask you, talk to me about the toll it takes on you and your team of being on the front line of this information war for so many years. Uh, It's exhausting. Um, But at the same time, you know that it's important to hold the line in this moment. We are not going to voluntarily give up our rights. We are not going to voluntarily give up our power. The Philippines has a constitution that's patterned after the United States. We have a Bill of Rights. So it feels now more than ever that it is important to actually make sure freedom of the press, freedom of expression, that these rights are exercised. We won't be intimidated. Um, I think the other part is that for the Philippines, it's an existential moment where we have presidential elections on May 9th. That's less than 65 days away, you know, and we're counting the days. So what we have done in the absence of any legislation that is going to hold back the tech, right? In the absence of that, what we've done is to try to figure out how civil society, media, and the law can work hand in hand to try to deal with this pandemic of lies. You know, I've said that even, even as we are facing the coronavirus and this global pandemic, we're also in our information ecosystem facing a pandemic of lies. And as you played earlier, it is targeting women, 
the marginalized, it is hitting us far more than it is hitting the mainstream. So, you know, if you were marginalized before, it's even worse today. And gender disinformation has pushed many women out of journalism and of politics all around the world. I want to ask you much more about gender disinformation, but before I do so, just one quick question about, you referred to your own election coming up. Of course, we're in an election cycle almost always in the United States, but what needs to happen to ensure that those elections go forward in a free and fair way? I think it starts with whether or not we have free will, whether social media, which I've called a behavior modification system, allows us to exercise that. You cannot have integrity of elections if you don't have integrity of facts. If we, if we debate the facts, how can we then have an entire system? That's the fundamental flaw. So here's the problem in this year, as we face all the elections coming up, right? From after the Philippines, you have elections in Hungary, in Kenya, in France, in uh, Brazil. And Bolsonaro, you know, Bolsonaro was kind of off on the fringe far right until social media brought him into the mainstream. This was YouTube in, in that instance. And then, of course, the United States. Um, many Americans think that, you know, what we are going through in the Philippines is happening out there. But I certainly hope that by now, after January 6th last year, you realize that the same thing is happening to you. <sighs> and so what does that mean? We need to demand that guardrails be put in place by the social media platforms, because if we have a virus of lies in our information ecosystem, we all get infected. And then the second part is, you know, an awareness that civil society, that governments, that uh, human rights groups, every this is kind of what we're doing in the Philippines Four layers that we put together with a data pipeline coming through, trying to get our communities together, that we need a new way of putting democracy into action, that you can't wait, right? When you're dealing with exponential lies, civil society, media, the law cannot wait for the normal pace of ingesting the lies of fighting back the lies. It must move at the same pace. That's what we're trying to do. And um, I, apparently, I guess we're successful because we've been targeted by uh, political uh, forces again. So yeah, we keep going. So talk to me again about this phrase, gender disinformation. You've been on the receiving end. Tell me about this significance in terms of driving women out of positions and what the everyday pressures can be like. So um, the International Center for Journalists, working with UNESCO, last year did a big data study of the attacks against me. They went over almost 400,000, so almost half a million attacks, right? And out of that big data case study, what they found was that 60% of the attacks against me were meant to tear down my credibility. So really, trust is the first target, right? Tear down my credibility. The other 40%, was meant to tear down my spirit. It was abusive, it was dehumanizing, it would take every part and just tear it apart. You, you have to get used to this. There were points when I was getting at least 90, 908 messages per hour. What's happening to me is not unique, right? Many women journalists all around the world 
feel this. And any targeted, anyone who's standing up to power get, can get targeted on social media in the same way. Uh, Rana Ayu, uh, I think the Washington Post just ran kind of the 10, you know, the 10 press freedom uh, issues right now. And Rana Ayub, who's in India, is facing the same kind of horrific situation that I'm that I have faced and continue to face in the Philippines. What does that do to women journalists? Many I've spoken with say, you know, they opt out, that it's just not worth it. But others decide to fight it out. Um, looking for systemic solutions, we don't have them yet. But in the meantime, what we tried to do is, you know, a three-prong approach in Rattler. It's tech, journalism, and community. With tech, we try to fight back. With tech, we built our own tech. We demand guardrails be put. I now, a few years ago, if you asked me whether I believed in legislation, I would have said no. Now I know it is imperative. The second is we need to strengthen journalism. And that's part of the reason I I I became a co-chair of the International Fund for Public Interest Media, which is to try to help independent journalism survive. In the United States, you know, you have enough philanthropic groups, at least that can 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 kind of plug a finger in the in the dam. Uh, and you have groups like the Washington Post and the large organizations that are able to then turn um, reader revenue into a into a business model. I think the third part is the most important part, and we don't talk about it enough as journalists. It is community. Rappler's, Rappler's elevator pitch in 2012 is that we build communities of action, and the food we feed our communities is journalism. Well, now more than ever, these communities of action are important, and for our presidential elections, we are mobilizing them to protect the facts, because this is... You know, when we when you have the the front runner in the Philippine presidential elections is Ferdinand Marcos Jr. So 36 years after the Marcos family was ousted in a people power revolt that helped trigger peaceful democracy movements all around the world, his son Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is now poised, is now the front runner in our presidential elections, and hand in hand with that were the networks of disinformation that essentially revamped history in front of our eyes. Marcos, who was kicked out in people power, was actually a hero, right? So these are narratives that Filipinos believe, and they will have an impact in our elections. Maria, it's International Women's Day. Um, I have two questions about that. What, what more do we need to do to make sure that women journalists can carry on working? And I would extend that to other marginalized communities as well. And then secondly, What's your message on International Women's Day to women journalists around the world? I think we need to acknowledge what women journalists have gone through. And, I, and I've certainly seen some progress, although not enough. You know, it's if you're in the newsroom and you're getting attacked, you are not going to be able to ignore it. And you're not going to be able to do this on your own. So one of the things that we did early on in Rappler in October of 2016 was to actually, A, offer counseling to the women who were under attack, um, because this was both social media and our reporters. And then secondly, to actually create a system where we were able to collectively fight back against these attacks. Because in the age of abundance, information abundance, a powerful, the old powerful news organizations can't afford 
to just ignore these attacks because a lie seeded said a million times becomes a fact. So I think that's the first. I think the second one is to, to kind of do more stories that show these social impacts. Um, so much of the stories on tech was about, for a very long time, about its power and how wondrous it is. We're beyond that now. We're now in Aldous Huxley's, you know, Huxley's, his brave new world and social media has kind of become like Soma. So we need to kind of break through and help. And there's been a lot of stuff that that you have done that um, that news organizations are now doing, but still not enough. We need to rate to sound the alarm and demand protection for the users, for all of us, right? This is kind of like creating a better business bureau for our minds. A better business bureau for our minds. What a great note to finish on. Maria Ressa, thank you so much for joining me today at Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.